You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And I would like to begin this morning by reading the text that the Spirit of God would have for us. It is an incredible section of Scripture, one that has spoken to my heart this week, and as I've prepared to preach, I've just felt it. You know how there are times when you're in God's Word and you can just feel it? That's, that's the experience that I've had this week, and so I trust and hope that the God of Scripture will minister to your heart as well. If you are taking notes with the sermon sheet provided in your bulletin, go ahead and write in the words, Part one, after the title, there at the top. Because I did my best, I really did. But we're looking at a two-part message today. I promise we will make good progress through Philippians, but you will have to come back next week for the conclusion. For now, let's read the entire passage, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. He says, Not that I have already obtained this, Or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think the thing that I hate the most about the holidays is the constant flow of emails. Surely I'm not the only one who receives tons and tons of emails from every store I have ever visited around the holidays. It's annoying. Some of you have asked me, Pastor Hans, why haven't you responded to my email yet? Well, it's buried under 50 other emails that I have no intention of reading. So I apologize for that. But I'm sure I'm not the only one. We find ourselves buried beneath the flood. And then, as soon as the new year turns, just when we think that we're about to get our inboxes back, what happens? There's a resurgence. Only this time, it's workout clothes and exercise equipment. As if the first run wasn't bad enough. For many of us, January has become the official month of turning over a new leaf and seeing how long we can last before giving up on the dream of better health. So we quickly delete the ads for running shoes and diet plans without even opening them, because we've been down that road before, and my wife's going to kill me if I get another gym membership. I'm sure it's the same for many of you, and and if you can relate to that, take heart, because obviously, you're not alone. You're not alone. But what's true for the body is also true for the spirit. If we ignore the clear commands of Scripture, if we delete the imperatives that make us uncomfortable within the Word of God, we get lazy. 
and we suffer all sorts of trouble as a result. Unfortunately, it is far too easy to get comfortable, to sit back, relax, to just let go and let God. But Scripture tells us over and over and over again, friends, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't sit back. Don't relax. Don't just let go and let God. Instead, we are told to get up, to get in the game and to get in shape. And we need to be reminded of that often, to get moving more than once a year. Because the Christian life is far from passive. It is an active endeavor. That's why Paul and the other apostles use so many dynamic pictures and metaphors to describe the Christian life all throughout the New Testament. We saw a few of them in our scripture reading earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells us to suffer like a good soldier, like a good soldier of Christ, one who is single-minded and ready to please his commanding officer. Elsewhere, we are told to fight the good fight and to put on the whole armor of God, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil that are found in the heavenly places. The Christian life is one of active obedience and focused fighting as we advance the Lord's army and and bring the gospel to those who are perishing. 2 Timothy 2.5 then compares us to an athlete as one who is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And likewise, we have been given a set of rules to follow in the word of God. We know how to compete and what it takes to win because God has given us his instructions. We are told to be like a hardworking farmer who faithfully plants the seed of the gospel in the soil of men's hearts and then patiently waits for the harvest. Of all the metaphors and the pictures that the Bible provides for living the Christian life, you will be hard-pressed to find one that does not inspire action. And it becomes clear that Paul's favorite illustration, in the midst of all these illustrations, is that of the athlete. He loves that illustration. It becomes obvious as you read through the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was a sports guy. He was totally a sports guy. He compares the Christian life to wrestling, to boxing, to running. And it's that picture of a runner that he keeps coming back to over and over and over again. In Acts 20, 24, he told the Ephesian elders that the only thing that mattered to him was that he would finish his course, that he would complete the race. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he says, do you not know that in a race, All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run. So run so that you may obtain it. In other words, don't just run for the fun of running. Run to gain something. Run to win the prize. In Galatians 2, he talks about not wanting to run in vain. In Galatians 5, 9, he flips it around and he says, You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And even at the very end, before his death, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul saw the Christian life as a race of faith, 
where God takes a man and puts him on the racetrack of God's will for his life. And that will is more godliness, more holiness, more Christ-likeness. And like a race, there is forward progress, there is movement, there is action, there is requirement. And as we run the race and we put one foot in front of the other and we make our way down the track, we find ourselves conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So Coach Paul wants to show us what it means to become a champion Christian. Remember, he's writing this letter while under house arrest in Rome, not too far from the Colosseum. And at that time, in that culture, to win the games meant instant celebrity status. Believe it or not, it was actually a little worse than today. Today, you want to become a celebrity. You want everyone to know who you are. You want all the endorsements. You want your name and your face on every billboard. All you have to do is score the winning touchdown, right? All you have to do is draw in that million-dollar paycheck, Back then, it was even worse. It was worse. To win the games meant instant celebrity status. The city would make statues out of you and line the roads with them. You never had to pay taxes again for the rest of your life. You were the envy of all of your peers and a role model for people who had only heard of you. It is within that context, with that in mind, that Paul writes to the Philippians. And he tells them, run the race, but don't just run the race, run the race to win. Run to win. He wants them to be all that they can be in the name of Christ. And we should all want that for ourselves and for our fellow believers. So what does it mean? What does it mean to believe in Christ, follow Christ, and actively become like Christ? How do we make progress down the track and become more spiritually mature, more spiritually useful to our God? Well, we're going to look at five things mature Christians do. Five things that mature Christians do. These are all actions modeled for us and outlined by Coach Paul in our text in verses 12 through 17. First of all, to grow in Christ, you must admit the facts. Admit the facts. Look at verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, This man literally wrote half of the books you have in your New Testament Bible. This isn't some baby Christian sharing his experience. This is Paul. Even Paul, this apostle to the Gentiles, this pillar of the church, even he had to take a good long look in the mirror and admit the facts. And in verse 12, he gives us a clear picture of the Christian's condition. What's true for him is certainly true for us. And so he admits three facts here in this verse that are true for every Christian. To begin with, we see the Christian's confession. The Christian's confession. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, I might be the Apostle Paul, but I have not arrived yet. More specifically, though, what is Paul talking about here in this text? What is the this? 
that he hasn't already obtained to? The answer is found in verse 10, verses 10 and 11, where he says, his chief desire in life is to know Christ to the fullest extent possible. He's saying, I haven't gotten to the point where I know Christ as well as I should. I still have room to grow. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? We all have room to grow. Whether we've been walking with the Lord for two years, 20 years, or 50 years, we all have room to grow. None of us know Christ as well as we should. If you are a sports fan, you may already know of what is perhaps the most famous and bizarre marathon of all time. It happened back in 1904 in the Summer Olympics. It was the first time the United States had ever hosted the Olympic Games, and it was by far the strangest. I had a fun time this last week reading all about it. It was held in conjunction with the World's Fair in St. Louis, and Smithsonian Magazine says it was, quote, a freakish spectacle that seemed more in keeping with the carnival atmosphere of the fair than the reverential mood of the games, end quote. That's a nice way of saying the whole thing was a joke. If anything could go wrong, it did go wrong. But as I found myself reading about the marathon and sucked into the chaos this last week, one story sort of rose above the rest, and I'd like to share it with you today. It involved a man named Fred Lors. Of the 32 men who took off at the start of the marathon, Fred took the lead for the first mile or so, and then he started falling far behind. No one expected him to become the winner, but one by one, those in front of him started dropping out of the race. The leader's esophagus became coated with dust and started to tear apart his stomach lining. So thankfully he was fine, but he did have to get rushed to the hospital immediately, so he was out. The next runner started vomiting and after a while decided he had had enough of this, so he just walked away. The third runner found himself surrounded by a pack of wild dogs and was chased for more than a mile off of course. All of a sudden, Fred became the man out in front. So he gave it his all. He carried the lead for about nine miles before deciding he had had enough. So he just stopped. It was a hot summer day over 90 degrees, and he decided he was done. So he waited for one of the cars carrying the judges to drive by, and he hopped on for a ride. Supposedly, he waved at the other runners as he sat back and enjoyed himself. Well... The judges agreed to take him the rest of the way since he was out of the competition, but sure enough, five miles out from the stadium, the car broke down, which was a really common thing back then. Realizing that his clothes were still back at the stadium, Fred hopped over the side of the vehicle and started jogging towards the arena. As he entered the Olympic Stadium, in just under three hours, the crowd went wild and started chanting, an American one, an American one, an American one. Later, Fred admitted that he kind of got carried up in all of the excitement, so he raised his hands in the air as a sign of victory as he strutted into the arena, even though he didn't deserve the gold medal. Before he could say anything, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter came over for a picture and placed the winner's wreath upon his head. She was about to lower the gold medal around his neck when the officials finally caught up with him, and all that cheering turned to booing. For a whole 15 minutes, 15 minutes, Fred enjoyed the accolades of victory. But in the end, he had to confess the truth. 
that he had not arrived, even though it appeared as though he had. You see, there are no shortcuts when it comes to the Christian life. The only way to win is to keep running. Anyone who thinks that they have arrived this side of the grave, they are lying to themselves and everyone else. We all have room to grow. Every last one of us. None of us know Christ as well as we should. That is the Christian's confession. Next, we see the Christian's conviction. The Christian's conviction. He says, but I press on to make it my own. That word press on, it means to pursue wholeheartedly. It means to chase after with speed and decisiveness. This word was used of armies advancing after an enemy. This word was used of hunters closing in on their prey and and runners giving it their all as that finish line comes into view. It's a word used for worthy causes and sacrifices and last efforts and when everything is on the line. And Paul uses this word three times in this chapter alone. Two of those occurrences are obvious as we look at the page in our English Bibles, both here and in verse 14. But the other instance is a little less obvious. It's very obvious when we look at it in the Greek language because it's the exact same word in the exact same form and structure as we see here. But that is found back in verse 6 when Paul is describing his former way of life before Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus. He says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. That word persecutor, it's actually a verb in the Greek. He was one persecuting the church. It is the exact same word that we have here for press on in verses 12 and 14. It's the word press on. So at one time, Paul pressed on. He pursued the church relentlessly, hoping to destroy it. Listen, Paul was a hothead. Paul was intense. He didn't just make fun of Christians or disagree with their views in the synagogues. He went after them. He pursued them, and he dragged them into prison and voted against them when their, lines were, when their lives were on the line. He pressed on against these precious folks with zeal and passion and conviction because that's who Paul was until the Lord Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and turned him around to do a complete 180. Paul was on his way to arrest Christians. When Jesus arrested him, Jesus took this hothead, this enemy of the cross, and rather than cool him down or or put water on him, he turned him around and he let him loose in the right direction. Paul is saying, I once pressed on, against the church, but now I press on with the church for more of Christ. And he never stopped running. He never lost his conviction. That drive to make a difference, to keep going no matter what, that is the Christian's conviction. To run full speed for the cause of Christ, to know him more fully, to make him your own. And that leads us to the third Christian condition. 
Finally, we see the Christian's confidence. The Christian's confidence. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Friends, aren't you glad that our Savior isn't throwing out life preservers, hoping that someone will grab on and hold on tight enough to make it? No, if you belong to Christ, it is because he has made you his own. He has made you his own. He is the one who saw you drowning and decided to reach down into the water and drag you into the boat. He is the one who decided to set his love upon you, to call you out of darkness, to give you a new birth, to make you a new creation in his name. He is the one who saved you by dying in your place and suffering the penalty for your sins so his righteousness could be added to your account. Look, if you belong to Jesus, it is because he made you his own. He owns you. He took possession of you. The moment he pulled you out of this world system and placed you onto the track of his righteousness, of becoming more like him, he made you his own. So why does the Christian pursue Christ? Why should you press on towards Christ for more of Christ with every fiber of your being? It's simple, friend. Because Christ pursued you. That's why. Because Christ pursued you. You were lost before he saved you. You were dead in your sins. You didn't deserve grace. You didn't love God or do anything good enough to make him want to love you. Like Paul, you were God's enemy, pressing on towards other things. When God arrested you by opening your mind to the truth of the gospel, he pulled the blinders off of your eyes, he unplugged your ears, and he gave you a new heart. He breathed life into the the rotting corpse of self-obsessed rebellion that marked your life before your conversion, and he adopted you into his divine family. Christ has made you his own. He has done this. And once he has made you his own, he will not let go of you. So press on and push forward in your pursuit of him. Listen, if you are truly a believer, if you are truly a Christian, if you follow Christ, then you must admit the facts. You must and affirm these three aspects of the Christian condition. They must describe you in your walk with the Lord. Let me ask you, does verse 12 describe your spiritual life? Like Paul, do you carry the Christian's confession that you haven't arrived yet? That you know Christ, but you don't know him to the fullest extent like you should? Do you want to grow closer to Christ? Do you want to become more like Christ? Do you want to know him more intimately than you do right now? Listen, friend, there is so much more of Christ out there. So much more. There is so much more of him that you don't have, that you need. You need more of him. You have only just begun this thing. We all have. 
But let's just pretend for a moment that we are as spiritually mature as the Apostle Paul. Even Paul, though, he still needed more of Christ. He hadn't arrived. He, makes, he admits that here within Scripture. It's something that you can tease him about for all of eternity if you want. You can come up to him and you can say, Hey, Paul, you remember that time when you said in Scripture you were deficient? Ha <laughs> ha, that was really funny. It's true. It's true. It's true for him, and it's true for us too. You know, this year marks my 10-year wedding anniversary with Julia. 10 years ago, I knew my wife well enough to marry her. And it was, hands down, one of the best decisions I ever made, the best decision I ever made, marrying my wife. I knew her well then, but guess what? I know her better now. And she knows me better now. And if history has taught me anything, 10 years from now, I'm going to know her better than I do today. Why? Because I want to know her. And because there will always be more of her to discover and to get to know. How much more so with Christ, the second member of the Godhead, the perfect God-man, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How much more of him should we be growing in our relationship and our discovery of him and getting to know him better, getting to know him more? I will gladly confess that I don't know him like I should. Therefore, I want to know him better. Is that your confession? What about the Christian's conviction? Do you have that? Are are you fired up and determined to run this race to the very end? Are you pursuing Christ? Are, Are you running after him with everything that you have in order to gain everything that he is? Are you aggressive like Paul in your hunt for Christ? Or are you passive like so many Christians who dress up, come to church on Sunday, visit with friends, sing a few songs, listen to a sermon, go home, and do it all again next week? Are you pressing on or pushing up daisies in your Christian life? What are you doing? What are you doing? And what about the Christian's confidence? Do you have that? Are you fueled by assurance and the certainty that Jesus has saved you by making you his own. If you are his, then he has placed you on the track. Are you running the race as if your life depended on it, or are you sitting in the stands waiting for the clock to run out? The Christian wants more of Christ and aggressively pursues more of Christ because he doesn't have enough of Christ. And Christ has given him a reason to run. If you are going to grow, you have to admit the facts. You have to. You have to admit the facts concerning your confession, your conviction, and your confidence. That's number one. Number one. Number two. To grow in Christ, you must advance with confidence. Advance with confidence. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says there's one thing, one thing that I have to do, and that's press on. He says, keep your eye on the prize and make this the one thing that you do. Keep pushing forward. Notice, as multifaceted as the the Christian life is, Paul says that there is really only one thing worth doing. Again, if you are an athlete, you totally get what he's saying. Because an athlete knows how to say yes to one thing and no to everything else. An athlete knows what that feels like. An athlete says no to staying out late. They say no to to a fast food diet. They say no to so much entertainment and distractions and normal activities because an athlete is concerned about one thing. Paul says, like the athlete, I'm concerned about one thing. He can freely say no to anything and everything else because nothing compares, as he has already stated earlier in the chapter, nothing compares to the infinite value, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That word forget, it literally means to neglect. To neglect. It means to not care about something. It's the image of a runner who is focused on one thing, and that is winning. He's focused on the future. He doesn't look back. He doesn't look over his shoulder to see how far he's come or even how far he might be ahead of the others. Instead, he looks forward because the race isn't over yet and he still has ground to cover. Does this mean that we should burn the past to ashes and start every new day as if yesterday never happened? Of course not. Of course not. That's not how Paul lived. But it does mean that we should never let anything from the past pull us back from moving forward. And that includes both the good times and the bad times in our spiritual history. Let me ask you this. Is there something in your past, a great failure, a great season of sin, a great embarrassment, something that you're not proud of, that fills you with regret and shame and naturally pulls your mind away from the race? Now you're thinking about it, aren't you? Is there anything at all that takes your eyes off of the price? Paul says, stop drudging that stuff up. And remember, you've got a race to win. You're in a game. You can't neglect that. So buck up, buddy boy. Get your head in the game. When we fall, we get back up and we get back in the race. Don't dwell on your failures and allow them to prevent you from moving forward. Or maybe you struggle on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you spend too much time thinking about the good old days, thinking about the things that you did for the Lord when you were younger. Friend, forget about that. Forget about that. And that you shouldn't dwell on those things. You need to neglect them. You need to purposefully push them aside and ask yourself the question, what am I doing for him now? What am I doing for him now? Just a few weeks ago, I met with an older gentleman 
who I love and have a lot of respect for. And he asked me a very simple question at one point as we were talking. He said, when do I get to retire? And I totally relate to what he's saying. I understand him, I believe, perfectly. Because he wasn't talking about vocational retirement. He wanted to know, at what point can I finally take a breath? Can I finally relax? Can I just sit down for a moment? So I took him to this passage and reminded him that the race is not over until we cross that finish line. Until we cut that tape, our job is to run. Our job is to run. Some of you are young in the faith, and you haven't even rounded that first lap yet. You're just glad to be in the game. You're still working up a sweat. While others have served the Lord for decades, and everything in you is saying, I'm tired. I'm tired. Just take it easy. After all, look at all of the service and the growth that you've got behind you. Everything you've done to get you this far. Friend, I just want to remind you, your race is not over yet. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Your race is not over yet. And now is not the time to slow down or take your eyes off of the prize. Now is the time to push through and press on. It's time to forget about everything that you've got behind you and focus on finishing the race. Meanwhile, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was like, Lord, what is the, what is the most encouraging, best way of, of bringing this truth to bear on our church? So let me, just, let me just hit you with a little bit of tough love encouragement, okay? If your focus, particularly as a senior saint in this church, If your focus is on pleasing the Lord, growing in the Lord, becoming more mature, walking with him, providing a good example for others, finishing the race well, what does that look like? If you're a senior saint at this church, that means every time you pick up the phone, it should be to encourage someone else, not gossip. Okay? There is no room for that within the body of Christ. Every time you're tempted to complain about the younger generation, here's an idea. Show them what service looks like. Be an example worth following and go out of your way to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. Ladies, this is your time. This is your time to become that Titus II woman of faith who looks for younger women to pour into and invest in. Let me let you in on a secret. Actively looking for young women to help, that's not a weird thing. It's not weird at all. It's a good thing. In fact, you'll discover that they want the help that you can provide for them. They want the same help that you wanted when you were their age. So help them out. Teach them how to rely on the Lord. Teach them how to love their families and age well in the faith. Teach them some of those hard lessons that you have learned along the way. Share that with them. Likewise, men, this church is full of folks who need your help. I need your help. We need you. So step up and run the race. Listen, if you aren't doing anything for the Lord right now, it is not because you are lacking an opportunity. Don't blame anyone else if you aren't running the race. If you aren't growing in Christ and becoming more like Christ, especially as we all get closer to seeing him, 
that's on you. Because no one will run your race for you. And none of us can afford to slow down or look back. None of us can. It's okay to remember the past and reflect on your spiritual growth. But it is not okay for you to let your past distract you from running the race before you now. Paul says, my past doesn't matter. Good, bad, it doesn't matter. I can't let it hold me back from doing what needs to be done. But forgetting is only half of it, folks. It's only half of it. What else does he say? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That word straining, it means to stretch out. It means to exert oneself to the point of exhaustion. I know that I stand before you in many ways an overweight, broken man. And I know that it's very hard to believe, but please try in your mind's eye to imagine this with me. When I was younger, believe it or not, I used to be a really skinny kid. And I loved running track. I was a track and field guy. I was what they call a middle distance runner. I was quick, but not as quick as the sprinters. And I could pace myself, but I lacked the endurance of the cross-country runners. So my events were right in the middle. The 800-meter run and the 4x4 relay. Often when I would run the relay, my position was the anchor, meaning that I was the last guy to receive the baton. I remember there were several times as I came around the final curve and I saw that finish line right in front of me, one of two things would happen. Most of the time, everything hurt, as you can imagine. And it would take everything in me to stay focused and to push through to the end. But rarely, every once in a while, I would find myself breaking through the pain. And all of a sudden, my legs would disappear. I would be flying, just flying down the track, through the air with one goal in mind, and that was to win this thing. That is exactly what we are supposed to do in our pursuit of Christ. As we come around that final corner and we see the end in sight, it's not the time to slow down. It's not the time to take inventory or drift into regrets. You have to strain forward to what lies ahead. You have to push through and lean into it. You need to widen your stride. He then says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What an incredible goal. What an incredible prize. Notice what's waiting for us at the finish line. It is both a goal and a prize. A goal and a prize. It is something worth straining towards and collapsing to receive with open arms once we cut that tape, once we cross that line. It is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Christian, if you have been doing this for a long time, don't slow down. And if you are new to this race, don't pace yourself. Wherever you are, press on. Push yourself forward. Strain forward. Widen that stride. Push yourself past the point of exhaustion for that goal of receiving Christ, your prize. You can advance with confidence because the race isn't over. It's not over, folks. It's not over till it's over. And we all have ground left to cover. All of us do. Every single person drawing breath in this room today has ground left to cover. There is more of Christ to know 
There is more of Christ to become. And there is, we are surrounded by each other. Friends, we must, we must encourage one another to run this race well. To run this race well. All spiritually mature people have this in common. They all do. They advance with confidence. Well, we'll save the remaining three points for next time. But go ahead and take a peek at the next sentence. Look at what Paul says next in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He says this is how people who are spiritually mature think. They admit the facts and they advance with confidence. Friend, I hope, I hope that God's word will encourage you today. If you're down and out, or if you're sitting back and thinking, it's time to retire. I have done my service. I did some good back in the day. Wherever you are today, whatever is preventing you from moving forward, from exerting the maximum amount of effort, of pushing forward in this race to advance the gospel and to grow in Christ, I hope and pray that this passage will be a wake-up call for you. That you will wake up, that you will get up, that you will get in the game, that you will look to Jesus and give this race everything that you have. I share with you Fred's story from 1904 in the Summer Olympics. But there were all sorts of interesting characters on the course that day. One of them was a Cuban mailman named Felix Carbajal. When Cuba refused to fund his trip to the United States, Felix went door to door asking for support. People came through and gave him enough money to sail over here by boat. Unfortunately, once he arrived in New Orleans, he lost everything in a dice game. So he hitchhiked his way to St. Louis and found himself ready to go at the starting line. Only without the funds necessary to purchase proper running attire, he entered the race wearing a white long-sleeved dress shirt, dark dress pants, a beret, and a pair of dress shoes. One of his fellow Olympians took pity on him and gave him a pair of scissors so he could cut his pants off down at the knees. Even so, he ran the entire 26-mile distance in street shoes and finished in fourth place, just barely missing a medal. But here's the sad truth of the matter. Sad truth is that Felix could have won, and he would have won if he hadn't been distracted along the way. As he ran, he would stop and make small talk with the spectators. At one point, he stole some peaches from a passing truck and developed stomach cramps. He then stopped at an orchard to gorge himself on apples that turned out to be rotten. After that, his stomach cramps got worse, so he laid down and he took a nap in the middle of the race. You see, Felix allowed himself to get distracted with things that really didn't matter, things that were inconsequential, things that were frivolous. He could have won it all, but instead he came in fourth, and history remembers him as the goober who lost his focus. Friend, when it comes to your Christian life, don't be a Fred, and don't be a Felix. 
Keep your eye on the prize and strain for the goal. Don't slow down. Don't look back. Exhaust yourself for the sake of knowing Christ. Pursue holiness. Press on towards Christ's likeness and push yourself forward till you cross that line and you finally finish the race. Because friends, we are not done yet. None of us are. When that day comes, when you have finally finished running and you stand before Christ himself, it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it to see him place that winner's crown on your head and to hear him say those words, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, that we would be encouraged to run this race well. Lord, thank you again for not calling us out of darkness, for not pulling us out of the water and dragging us into the boat in order for us to just sit there and remain inactive. Thank you for this active Christian life that you have put us on. Thank you for this track of righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would run the race well, that we would not look to the left or the right, that we would not concern ourselves with lesser things, but that we would keep our eyes on you, that we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue Christ-likeness, that we would leave sin behind us, that we would forsake the systems of this world, and that we would pursue Christ wholly, completely, that we would be singular in our focus. Lord, we long for that day when we will stand before you. Lord, we want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, continue to work in our hearts. Continue to convict us of sin. Continue to expose our thoughts and expose those things that are so not like Christ. Lord, I pray that we would make a confession that we would hold to our conviction, that we would advance with confidence because you have laid hold of us, because we have been put on that track, because you have saved us, not to keep us or to to allow us to remain as we are, but to see us grow more and more into the conformity of your son. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Work in our hearts this week as we carry this truth with us we convene again next week to finish it out. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.